Hey there, chatters. I'm Nat. And I'm Kat. And welcome to The Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale. Natalie is your true crime addict connoisseur. We're just two normal girls who obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. And if you've been listening, chatters, you know, Kat and I are not the drama. Oh, no. <laughs> no, those, the, the drama is exclusive to our criminals that we go over during a crime chat. <laughs> the drama's in the stories. <laughs> we may be dramatic about it, but the drama is in the stories. Oh, here's your disclaimer, chatters. The following crime chat contains adult content. And I'm assuming it descriptions of violent scenarios today. I, I don't know what Natalie's going over, but I'm going to go with it on that. Yeah. So your listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And before we get into today's crime chat, Kat, what have you done? Got some catching up. On some more shows. <laughs> What'd you do? I watched two newer documentaries, not murder related. Oh, okay. Gasp. I know. I know. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> right? <laughs> so the first one I watched was Arnold, uh-huh. the documentary on Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I saw the teaser kind of come up for it and, it, and I was like, eh. And then Chris the other day was like, you wanted to watch, try it? And I was like, yeah, it was freaking good. Yeah. It was really good. He's got an amazing life story, that man. Yeah, he does. He sure does. And then the other one that we watched was called Muscles and Mayhem about the American Gladiator TV show and how it came into production like in the late 80s into the 90s right. mm-hmm. and all the drama and all the issues and stuff that that they faced it was super interesting you know what i think i remember that show oh i watched it oh yeah the wrestling and hulk hogan (laughs) and stuff yeah i vaguely remember that and then i don't know if you saw this in our in our messaging on Mm -hmm. facebook but we have a guy that gave us a recommendation for a documentary to watch maybe Uh a future crime chat i don't know if you saw it so it's a guy um we call spanky Uh, we were stationed together a while back it's his nickname is spanky but he recommended a show i think it was on hbo max Ooh, hold on let me think about that yeah i'm pretty sure it was hbo max Uh it's called the curious case of natalia grace okay and basically it's about this supposed little girl who was born in the Ukraine, lived in an orphanage, huh. got adopted, and the adoptive parents, well, one, she went to a couple different a couple different families in the orphanage in the United States. She ended up with this one family who, was she was allegedly six years old, but there were a lot of physical features on her, even though she, and she was, a, she had, she was a little person. She yeah. had dwarfism or, or the, you know, the, the disease where, I don't know what is it muscles and and bones don't grow Uh I guess properly so she was a little person and they were basically questioning her actual age they got her age when she was supposedly around 10 11 12 years old upgraded to 22 so she had to they kicked her out question mark you know and she had they got her apartment she lived on her own and there was the two parents who got divorced mm-hmm. now the dad went to court and he was acquitted of all charges of neglect and it wasn't necessarily because legally she was of age yeah. they were talking about her disability and neglect on somebody who needs yeah. care like constant care so she, he was acquitted of that the wife who honestly is probably the primary person yeah. and there was alleged abuse and all kinds of other things but the charges were dropped against her but what i really really hope 
is for the mother that they drop the charges because they're still gathering enough evidence to be able to be more confident, right? So if they were to go to court and were to try it and they would lose, like it was a lot more risk, right? Anyway, super interesting, fascinating case. Like they started out where within the first month of Natalia staying with them, she would hide butcher knives from the kitchen in her room. Uh And when she was approached saying, what are you going to do with those knives? And she's like, I was waiting for you to go to sleep so I could kill you. What? And then there was one night the parents supposedly said, obviously it's her word against theirs kind of thing, is that they woke up in the middle of night one night and she was standing there in the doorway with her, with a butcher knife. (laughs) Freaking out. I'm familiar with this story. um, And I have some Mm -hmm. strong opinions about this whole (laughs) thing, okay? Because I think this is definitely a crime chat that we have to do because I personally think that Natalia Mm -hmm. was failed by the legal system because number one, you know, the minute he raised her age, Mm -hmm. things went downhill. Yeah. Didn't they move to Canada? Didn't they totally like leave the country? (laughs) They did. Yeah. So the oldest son who was also, he's in his twenties now. He was also interviewed on this documentary. Right. Obvious mental health issues, obvious signs of anxiety. But he was basically, when he was a teenager, was like this genius. And there was a university in Canada that offered him to have a master's degree program at the age of 14. I mean, that's how smart this kid was. Yeah. I just remember that um, they kind of like rented her a place and just put her there Mm -hmm. and left. Well, there was two places. There was one that was in town before they left. Her year lease was up right around the same time they got this offer for their oldest son Mm. to go to Canada. So it was kind of like simultaneously as they were leaving the country, they put her in a different place in a new town where like nobody knew her. But it's so interesting because Mm. so many of the neighbors were interviewed and how much they thought that she just was not right. Which is understandable. I mean, yes, the system failed, or yes, there's yeah. a lot of systematic neglect that probably happened in that whole process. But it was... Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what um, Spanky said was there's another uh, follow-up n- from Natalia's perspective coming later this summer. Good. So we'll see. We'll see. She's not the only case from Russia when it comes to adopting children overseas, especially in Russia, mm-hmm. like where they really don't have a system in place for just tracking these children in many ways. Mm-hmm. When you adopt one of these kids and they're a little older, you're adopting all of their experiences prior. So yeah. for an American family to wake up and see a child of six standing there with a knife saying, you know, mm-hmm. like, is that does that make the child... A psychopath? No. That that before you get before you get there, you need to understand that in coming from a different country, coming from uh a, with no parents and in a in the system mm-hmm. in a different country, that that may be just a survival tactic that the child needed to yeah. learn. Like you know, like when she sleeps, she needs something to protect herself. Like yeah, that could have been a learned experience. And here, yeah, yeah, we're immediately going, she's a psychopath. Oh, my gosh, she's going to kill everybody. Well, she was diagnosed as a sociopath. Yeah, but which is different she did, than a psychopath. Than a psychopath, right, as a sociopath. Yeah. And then the one of the other things is they were like, oh, she was from the Ukraine. She moved over here. I think she was like four or five when she moved to the United States or was adopted originally yeah. from the Ukraine to a different family before it came up to the, I think the Barnetts, I think is their name. Yes. And when... They're like, oh, we know somebody who has a friend who's from Ukraine, and maybe she could. Talk. She didn't. She didn't understand the language. Huh? She didn't speak 
for four days. And whenever she talked, it was like perfect English. She didn't even have a Ukrainian accent. Yeah. It's so it's just so it is weird. weird. And there's a movie about a horror movie called The Often. Yes, I was just about to say <laughs> like this is a real life yeah orphan. I I just feel like situation. when when you speak to her now, like well, I've seen interviews with her later on, and I just feel like yeah, th- this was a kid that would definitely stab you if you threatened her. But mm-hmm. kids don't normally do that. There's a reason why. But parents yeah. need to be more educated as to. Who they're adopting because yeah. they are coming from these violent circumstances. And, you know, at six, no, a child should not know how to, you know, savagely protect themselves in that way. But they do. And why? Yeah. Why do they? The more I watched the episodes, the more annoyed I got with the fucking father. He knew he was in front of the camera. He was mm. drama. And it, everything was elevated to like, okay, all right. Like, he was the stop. drama. He was he, the well, drama. He was probably put in a position to where, like, she was, the wife was, like, very manipulative. Uh-huh. She was abusive. Not saying, and then, oh, fuck, they ended it right on, like, where some allegation was against him. And then they freaking ended it. And I was like, what was it? Because I could totally see it. Because this whole time, yeah. I mean, and he was acquitted, so he can talk about it now. And yeah. there was one other thing, but that may come up, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Anyways, but the more we watched him, I'm just like... All right, I want to like punch the TV because yeah. you are just like next level. Like I'm not even listening to what you're saying because you're acting so beyond. Yeah, Ugh. you know what I mean. Like, ooh, the camera's here. Let me. That's gross. Ah. Yeah. All anyway. right, Spanky, you're on. We're gonna do this crime chat. <laughs> <laughs> and please, please tell me he got his nickname from Little Rascals. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it, well, I don't want to say his full name because I didn't tell okay. him I was going to talk about him. We're just going to say Spanky. Spanky. So for those who know me, who know him, you probably know who we'll it is. We'll call anyway. the episode the Spanky Special. The Spanky Special. <laughs> yes. When this episode comes out, it is one of my favorite weeks of the year. Shark Week? Shark Week. And I have my <gasps> shark cup. Oh my God. What? Uh, what's up? I feel like it's. I feel like we're in an episode of Poltergeist. Like it's there. It's this oh, cat, and it has all the different kind of sharks on it. And then on the other side, love it. On the other side, it says, "Once upon once upon a time, there was a girl who loved sharks. It was me." The end. <laughs> I love it. Love it. <laughs> Yay, Shark Week! <clears throat> Obviously, we're recording this before then, so I haven't watched any episodes, but I'm ready. Okay, good. Bring good. it. Well, okay, so that's a lot. A lot. What about you? <laughs> uh, basically, what have I done besides work, work, work? Work, 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 work. You gonna be Ron- Rihanna? Riri. Yeah. Natalie's a new Riri. I wish. I wish. <laughs> so that's basically all I've been doing. Nothing Just working. really. Yeah. Working. Working. It's a work week. Do, you haven't watched The Florida Man. I have not. Not yet. Mm-hmm. That's on your to-do list because. Yeah. Ah, uh, you'll love it. Okay. okay. <laughs> but before we jump into your story, I was like, hey, we haven't done a trivia in a while. Why not? So we'll we'll open up here on a bit of a okay. trivia. Now, is your story today, because I don't know what it is, Chatters, as usual, like, is your story today solved or unsolved? Solved. It is solved. Okay, good. Yeah. But I'm going to quiz you on some known unsolved cases. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay. I got my book here. Oh, I've got God. My, my serial killer trivia book. Okay. And I need to just take this off because it's driving me crazy. I Look see at this. the little skeleton. 
That's awesome. <laughs> okay. So, I remember this book you've had. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yes. Okay. So, Siri Killer Trivia Book. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not come up with these questions, nor did I come up with these facts. So, okay. this is by Michelle Kaminsky. We, mm-hmm. We've done a couple of quizzes from this before. Yeah. But I wanted to... We didn't really talk about any... Un- you heard that one, didn't you? He was right outside my door. Yeah, what was that? Biscuit. Hold on. Hold the phone. <laughs> Mama's about to beat some ass. It was at this moment that he knew he fucked up. Okay. I don't know what the hell they're barking at. So I decided I'd go over some unsolved or, you know, current open cases, cold cases. Oh, okay. Boy. I think you'll do well on these. I think some of them will be like, bing. Okay, I tried to pick the easiest ones. <laughs> okay, so. Oh, are you yeah. This one, you better get. Okay. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't put the pressure on. Bodies began turning up in May of 2010 after the disappearance of 24-year-old Shannon Gilbert. Gilbert, who had been diagnosed as bipolar but wasn't taking medication, called 911 from the home of a client, Joseph Brewer, reportedly saying, they're trying to kill me. And then, but the recording has never actually been made public. While searching for Gilbert, so they go to Brewer's house. Uh, He said he had a friend come over, try to calm him down, but the woman ran to the neighbor's house. She disappeared. She never made it to the neighbor's house. So while searching for Shannon Gilbert, authorities found the remains of four other victims, including a mother and a child, and they were referred to as the Gilgo Four at the time. Five more bodies were later discovered, and Gilbert's body was then later discovered, although some believe that she was a victim of Lisk. Is that a hint? No, I have no, I, I have no idea who you're talking about. This crime, uh-huh. Shannon Gilbert, yeah. which of New York City's 40-some islands was the stomping ground for this serial killer? We've, co- we've covered New York a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to say uh, islands. I'm going to say Long Island. Yes! Lisk is actually the Long Island serial killer. Oh, okay. And that's why I was like, does Lisk sound familiar? That was a happy accident because I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Lisk's current profile says that he's likely a white male in his 20s to 40s. He may have law enforcement knowledge or even worked in the field. Mm-hmm. May have access to burlap sacks as part of his employment. Mm-hmm. And several bodies were recovered inside of burlap sacks. There was one guy who was a convicted serial killer who was basically they were blaming the Lisk murders on him Joel Rifkin but there's no evidence to back it up like there's no physical evidence to back it up there was another guy because they thought maybe somebody with law enforcement knowledge an ex Suffolk County police chief James Burke was also listed as a possible subject Uh suspect again no evidence was there to tie him to the crime there was another guy uh John Biltroff, who was a carpenter. He was convicted of murdering two prostitutes in the 90s. Uh-huh. And another potential subject, he's serving two consecutive um, t- uh, 25 years to life sentences. But however, the actual identity of the Lisk, the Long Island serial killer, remains okay. a mystery. But I got it right. You got it right. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. <laughs> I knew you'd get oh that. Oh my one. God. I mean, I'll be, to be honest, this one is, this next one is okay. familiar. 
Investigation revealed that the medication had been tampered with sometime leaving after a factory, which meant someone went to various shores, stores in Chicago, lacing the capsules with cyanide or more, dropping already laced capsules inside the bottle. What murders forever changed the way over-the-counter painkillers are sold? What was the over-the-counter medicine? Oh. A painkiller. Acetaminophen. Tylenol? Yes! Oh. <laughs> Tylenol! Right? For some reason, when you said painkiller, I was immediately going to the hard stuff. Well, and that's why it's painkiller, but it, it's an over-the-counter. Okay. And in, technically, as acetaminophen, it is a pain reliever. I should have said pain reliever. Okay. But, yes, the Tylenol murders in Chicago took place over one terrifying week in 1982, beginning in se- on September 29th, with the death of a 12-year-old Mary Kellerman of Elk Grove, Grove, Elk Grove Village, she had taken extra strength Tylenol and died very quickly thereafter. The same day, 27-year-old Adam Janus of Arlington Heights died unexpectedly, and then his 25-year-old brother and 19-year-old sister-in-law passed away as well. As it turned out, they all took extra strength Tylenol. Three more people died in the greater Chicago area because the Tylenol that was found was laced with cyanide. Do, do you remember? Like, There's an old forensic files that covers this case. I, I'm not that familiar with that case, no. So no one was ever arrested in the deaths of the Tylenol victims. No oh. solid suspects either. One man did attempt to claim responsibility and requested a million dollars for ransom from Johnson & Johnson, who owned Tylenol. Right. But law enforcement decided that his letter was merely a hoax. In 2009, the FBI looked more closely at Ted Kaczynski. I value Nabomber as a possible suspect, but the identity of the culprit still remains unknown to this day. And Ted Kaczynski, uh-huh. he just died recently. He did? He died in prison. He sure did. I didn't know that. Oh, my God. The yeah. Unabomber. Okay. The Unabomber died in prison. Wow. Yep. So you are two for two, girl. This is, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This one's a little closer to your current home. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Between December 2005 and February 2006. Were you living there yet? I didn't move here till 2012. Okay. Um, so three sex workers were found murdered. They were sexually assaulted and shot, and their bodies had been discarded with no attempt to hide them. DNA confirmed that a serial killer was at large. So there was basically DNA was found on all victims. Police uh-huh. believe that the women willingly went as they were sex workers, either on foot or in a vehicle. There were no witnesses, and the trail went ice cold. What popular spring break locale in Florida was a serial killer's home from 2005 to 2007? I, I'm going to say Miami. Way close, a little more north. Jacksonville? A little more south. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my god okay uh palm beach <laughs> a little left De- a little right <laughs> daytona beach oh, spring oh, break. No. okay yeah that's why i was like this spring break everybody knows spring break you know daytona beach uh, oh god yeah uh so with that murder the daytona daytona beach police department renewed uh. their efforts to find a killer traffic stops beginning in february of 2008 swapped mouths of men who matched a profile they developed a a physical or a psychological profile white male clean cut employed with a girlfriend or a wife which is also typical of that type of murders because they have a fantasy but they're you know seemingly settled down but they have a fantasy and maybe obsessed with sex find workers kill them eh, 
there have been no named suspects mm. at all in this case. So I'm going to give you half because you were like right Two there. And a half. You were right Two there. And Two and a okay. half. So go back up north. We're back in New York. Okay. okay? Not We're in New York State. Okay. Canada. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey. <laughs> I'm not an immigrant. <laughs> okay. Three young victims were killed in the Rochester, New York area. Cameron, sorry, Carmen Cologne, age 10, Michelle Maenza, 11, and Wanda Wachowicz, 11. Each victim had matching first and last name initials. The, I just gave you the answer. Why was a serial killing, series of child killings in the early 70s called the Alphabet Murders? We should have just asked it because I probably would have got it wrong anyway. <laughs> well, I was going to give you other hints and I kept reading. Okay. <laughs> failed but do i get that point yes okay it's a freebie so basically they were called the alphabet murders because not only did the victims have a matching first name initial and last Mm -hmm. name initial so even more weird each girl was found in a town beginning with the same letter as their initials so carmen cologne was found in churchville michelle mayenza was found in macedon and wanda walkowitz was found in webster Wow. That's why they called it the alphabet child killings. Hmm. Serial killer. I gave you that one. So uh, three and a half out of four. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> one one more doozy. Okay. One more doozy. All right. Okay. Think mob. Think Chicago. Think Al Capone. Okay. You got me there. All right. All right. You might not know this. Okay. <laughs> this one's a tough one, but I was like, I tried, okay. I tried to give you ones that... More easier. And it still didn't work out. So just, just go. <laughs> so the mad bur- butcher of Kingsbury Run began his string of 12 to 20 murders in 1935 and continued through 1938. The killer wow. targeted both men and women with a common denominator being that the victims were usually transients, thus likely to not be missed. Right. In fact, 10 of the 12 confirmed victims are still unidentified today. Isn't that crazy? The killings are alternately called the Cleveland Torso Murders because the perpetrator sometimes cut the victims clearly in half. Mm -hmm. Each victim was beheaded, Mm -hmm. and many of the heads were never found. Most male victims were emasculated, Mm -hmm. and some of the bodies showed the evidence of a chemical substance also on the skin. Many of the bodies were already in advanced states of decomposition, making identification nearly impossible, particularly in, like, the 30s, right? So, he's a famous investigator. He's a famous police officer. Right. Yes. After pursuing Al Capone and taking Al Capone down in Chicago, who was working on it? Basically, the same case after of the Cleveland's Mad Butcher or the Cleveland Torso Killer. He also took down Al Capone in Chicago. I should know this. Oh, my God. I should know this because I read this case because part of the Torso Killer situation is the detective the lead detective the person you're asking yeah. for yeah i know for a fact he burned down the city yeah and like tried to rub it like you know like try to brush it like oh we're nothing to see here we're fine we're fine yeah and catching al capone was kind of his claim to fame yeah because he burned down i mean he killed so many people with trying to find the torso killer damn it what's his name his name is elliot ness yes. yeah damn it <laughs> So two suspects emerged in the Cleveland Mad Butcher or Cleveland Torso Killer, uh-huh. Torso Murders. Right. Two suspects emerged and one was even arrested. Frank 
Dolezal was brought in as a possible killer of victim Florence Polio, but he died in jail under mysterious circumstances six weeks Uh. after his arrest. The other potential perp was Dr. Francis Sweeney, who performed amputations during World War I, and he reportedly failed two polys. And then Ness himself interviewed him, but Sweeney voluntarily committed himself to a mental institution, and nothing further ever came of that lead. Yeah, Mad Butcher's identity has never Hmm. been confirmed. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I know, I know. Because there is a connection with him and Hodel. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Hello, season one throwback. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Oh, Oh my gosh. That's right. That's right. Mm. So you did, you did great. I'm going to give you four and a half out of five stars. I'll take it. (laughs) Oh, my God. So thank you for doing that. And, um. When you're when you're giving me the question, like I kind of know what you're talking about, but I am so bad with names. Yeah. Like, I'm really bad with names. Like like I will meet somebody, <laughs> I will go to an event or like a gala or a fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Like I'll look at you and be like, I know you. We had lunch. Yeah, I I am better with faces than I with names. Like I know I have seen you before. Mm-hmm. Your name is escaping right. me. <laughs> well, I'm glad your case that we're covering today is solved, and yeah. I'm so excited to hear what we got. We are going to go over the baby farmer murderer or serial killer. Either way, both fits. Oh, dear. It- like killed babies? Ugh, that's the picture. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> and you're back. So Natalie's got a picture of that. A weirdo. Yeah, that. It looks like a. It looks like a totem pole. That thing is the person that we will be covering. Okay. Okay. That thing. That is like the best picture I can get from her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's a her. It looks like a It's a her. Oh, my. She's terrible. Wow. Her name is Amelia Dyer, and she was born on June 10th, 1836. Oh, we're going way back. We're going way back, way back. way back. Back in time. She was the youngest of five with three brothers, Thomas, James, and William, and a sister, Anne, in a village in Bristol, which is in the UK. Are you? Yep. Have you ever been there? I know of Bristol. Okay. It's a big city. It's like a, a, it? a, big, a bigger city. Yeah. I don't remember okay. where it is. Dana, help us out. <laughs> Dana, we need you. Uh, she was the daughter of a master shoemaker, Samuel Hobley, and Sarah Hobley. Amelia learned to read and write and developed the love for literature and poetry. However, her childhood was rough. She was dealing with her mother who had mental illness that they said was a result of getting typhus fever. Now, typhus is a bacterial infection. It typically transmits through body lice and fleas. I mean, they were less hygienic back then. And then if they lived on a farm, eh. Although typhus can lead to high fevers, headaches, rash, muscle aches, there is no direct evidence that suggests that typhus can cause mental illness. Mm-hmm. However, severe infections and prolonged illnesses can impact a person's mental health. And also, if a person already has like a pre-existing mental health issue, mm-hmm. having typhus is, they're going to decompensate even further sure. in that way. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a medical professional, but any mm. any bacterial infection, especially if it gets into certain parts of the body, like if they're, yeah. you know, I'm just, meningitis, for instance, it's an infection in your spinal cord and it gets into the meninges in your brain and causes, you know, swelling and, and that kind of thing. And then right. 
I could see it. I could see neurological or mental complications following yes, that. Yes, definitely. Amelia witnessed her mother's violent fits and was obliged to care for her until she died in 1848. So I guess back then, you have a family member that's sick, it's your problem. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And she was young during this time. She was the youngest. Mm-hmm. Dyer had an older sister, Sarah Ann, who also died in 1841 at age six. And mm-hmm. a younger sister named Sarah Ann, the same name, who died in 1845, only a few months old. Back then, if you were the middle class or the lower class, you, you were subjected mm-hmm. to not the cleanest environment. And yeah. A lot of yeah. people said that they had more kids back then because the likelihood of some a kid surviving past a certain age were, was much lower. Sure. So. And yeah. so you had mom. Mom wanted to name a daughter after her, Sarah Ann. Sarah, the first Sarah Ann dies and was like, I still want a daughter named Sarah. Yeah. And unfortunately died a lot died of Sarahs. Yeah. It's a lot of Sarahs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, her elder cousin had an illegitimate daughter at the time who was later accepted as the daughter of of the grandparents so like okay. uh William and Martha Hobley who was uh Dyer's aunt and uncle mm-hmm. after her mother's death Amelia lived with this aunt and uncle serving as kind okay. of like an apprenticeship to a corset maker okay Ooh. so now in 1850 corset making was a popular trade and corsets mm-hmm. were an essential undergarment worn by women of various social classes why why, you ask, okay? Tell me. Well, why? Uh, the luxurious materials, of course. <laughs> Corsets were typically constructed with a combination of fabric, steel, and whalebone. I mean, I mean seriously. They sucked it all in. You gotta have some strong I, fabric. You gotta have some strong components there to, to get it all sucked in. I would in. not do well. I would not do well. I would rip out a whalebone and kill somebody with it. I would not do well. I mean, seriously, because... Think about it. If your family is investing in your figure in order for you to find a man, honey, you're going to be wearing that corset for a decade. Yeah. You you can't gain weight. You can't do you can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. Mm-hmm. The fabric used usually range from cotton to luxurious silks, depending on the wearer's social status and budget. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, her father died in 1859, and her eldest brother, Thomas, inherited the family shoe business. Okay. In 1861, at the age of 24, Amelia became permanently estranged from her brother, James. So back then, as a woman, you really didn't have many choices, mm-hmm. and if you were going to be estranged from the men in your family, then you really didn't have any financial choices. Of course. Because yep. you, you weren't entitled to anything. So that's probably why she looks as miserable. Or you had to get married. <laughs> That's true. Listen, she met an older gentleman (laughs) named George Thomas. They quickly got married. George was 59, and they both lied about their ages on the marriage certificate, reducing their age. Mm -hmm. So George deducted 11 years from his age. Amelia Mm -hmm. added six years to hers. Okay. Which I honestly don't understand that. I don't get it because I was married to somebody older who yeah. was 13 years older. Uh-huh. Really wasn't that big of a deal because yeah. I was 30 and he was in his 40s. It wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I Especially mean, back then, I don't get it. Well, because they had all the time, if you think even back in the 1600s, yeah. older men yeah. would often go for younger women to... Mm be able to reproduce and 
and still do and look at al pacino you right he would have to drop his age he would he would have to drop his age 40 (laughs) years to even be with it what the that's like almost a 60 year Um, age gap that's a whole lifetime of an age gap al pacino is older than his wife's grandfather no shit think about that wow yes that's that that is no Okay, so, well, after marrying George Thomas, she trained as a nurse at a midwife. She did work briefly at a local insane asylum that, you know, cared for mentally ill patients. And along the way, she met another midwife. Her name was Ellen Dane. Now, Ellen showed her kind of an easier way of making money. And this was basically using your own home to help conceive illegitimate babies. Okay. Ellen taught her basically how to farm off babies. Now, when this was a practice, you had two options. One, you would send off the babies for adoption. Or two, you would allow them to die from neglect or malnutrition. Okay. So of illegitimate babies, so babies that Mm -hmm. people didn't want, or whether it was like out of wedlock or whatever, you know, for back in the day, Mm -hmm. would take their babies to this farm, this baby farm. Right. And it was Ellen telling Amelia, you can do two things. You can let them die or you can adopt them off. Yeah. Now, would Amelia get money for people who would drop their illegitimate babies off there? Yes. Yes. And that, I'm going to get into that. But just so you know, this is still happening today. Bullshit. in, In the United States. So there is a documentary, I don't know, like on YouTube. If you look on YouTube and it's called, um, Rehoming. And what it does is they have people doing like a, a like some type of what do you call that like a pageant like a beauty pageant. Mm-hmm. So you have a runway and you have these children that are looking for parents walking the runway, and then oh. you have the parents standing around saying you know and the kids are doing their best to be the cutest, the prettiest, the you know the most, and the parents are just judging them. And there was one kid broke my heart. He was older. He was about 13. He's walking the runway. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I just need, I want a family. I have so many dreams. I, I And I know I can't get there without having a family, you Aww. know, to help me and support me. And the guy that was in the audience was a teacher, okay? And he goes, well, you know what? I'll I'll adopt him and we'll see how it goes for, for like a probation period of six mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. He returned to the kid. Oh my gosh! Because of it, because of personality issues, like they didn't get along as. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what the fuck? Like what the that poor boy? And he returned to the home. They did an interview with him, and he was just like, "It's okay," you know. Like he's, you could see he is trying mm-hmm. to stay focused. Mm-hmm. Shame on you to the guy that adopted him. Not to mention you're a teacher. Yeah. Shame on you. Ugh. Moving along. Okay. And now back to the 1800s. Okay. So during this uh, period, this was called the Victoria period. And this was from 1837 Mm -hmm. to 1901. And this refers to the reign Mm -hmm. of Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom. It was a significant era in British history, and it had a profound impact on various aspects of society, including politics, economy, culture and social norms including a clear division between social Mm -hmm. classes so now the 
upper class made up of people that had considerable power and influence. And then there was the middle class, which was also mm-hmm. the working class. And they faced challenging conditions and had mm-hmm. limited rights. Another element of the Victoria era was the moral values and code. This placed a strong emphasis on family values, religious beliefs, modesty, and sexual constraint. Sounds like a really unhappy place to live. This era emphasized gender Mm -hmm. roles with a clear division between domestic sphere, which was associated with women, and the public Mm -hmm. sphere, which was associated with men. Women stays in the house. The men is the representation of the family. Yeah. Outside the home. Yep. So now women were expected to be virtuous, modest, focused on their roles as wives and mothers. Mm -hmm. Victoria era also had fashion and style. Come on now. Yep. The Victorian fashion was known for its elegance and also literature and arts. So this period Mm -hmm. was technically a golden age for renowned authors such as Charles Dickinson, Jane Austen. The Victorian period was a complex and transformative period that shaped many aspects of society that left a long-lasting impact on British and Western culture. Mm -hmm. However... Unmarried expecting mothers at this time Mm -hmm. was a big no-no, like a big one. Yeah. And because of these social norms, unmarried mothers often struggle to gain income. And then matters became worse because 1834, the Poor Law Amendment Act was passed. Mm. Have you ever heard of that? No. The Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834 It was a significant piece of legislation in the UK. It was a controversial piece of legislation that aimed to reform the system of poor relief by centralizing administration, establishing workhouses, and limiting outdoor or independent relief. It continues to be a topic of historical social debate today. Some say this is socialism, Mm -hmm. but socialism and this is very, very different. So, like... It calls basically for the government to play a more active role in managing and planning the economy to benefit the working mm-hmm. class. The amendment aims to address poverty and provide relief, but it did not align with the principles of socialism. So like the act primarily focused on reducing the public spending and discouraging dependence through a more controlled mm-hmm. approach to poor mm-hmm. relief. It, it reflects a more individualistic perspective, emphasizing personal responsibilities, and work ethics. Socialism, on the other hand, seeks to address poverty and social inequalities by advocating for systemic changes in the economy and social Mm -hmm. structure. It calls for collective action and redistribution of wealth to create a more equitable society. So you can see how they're different in a way. In summary, the poor law... Amendment Act of 1834 and socialism represent two different approaches to addressing poverty and social welfare. While the act reflects more conservative and individualistic perspective, socialism seeks broader economic and social transformations to achieve social justice and equality. And I- but this amendment act also removed any financial obligation from fathers of illegitimate children. <laughs> it so, wasn't me. The, it wasn't me. Exactly. And illegitimacy was highly stigmatized. This led to the practice of baby Mm. farming, in which individuals acted as adoption or fostering agents in return for regular payments or a one-time upfront fee from the baby's parents um, or mother. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and adoptive parents, many businesses were set up to take in these young women and care for them until they gave birth. Mm-hmm. The mothers subsequently left their unwanted babies behind and, you know, basically to be looked after by this nursing person or nurse or midwife or something. Okay. Okay. Baby farming emerged in the 19th and the 20th century, particularly in England and Australia, uh, where people often women, would care for infants and young children for a fee. However, in many cases, the caregivers would neglect or even intentionally harm the children under their care, resulting in their deaths. The practice of baby farming represents a dark chapter in history, highlighting the vulnerability of infants, and it serves a reminder of the importance of ensuring the safety of children in society. Mm -hmm. In these baby farms, the adopting parents involved were often exploited for financial gain. Mm -hmm. If a baby had well-off parents who wanted to keep the birth a secret, the single fee might be as much as 80 pounds, which back then in 1859 was $388 US. So that's a big Mm -hmm. fee back then. I mean, that's, yeah, you know. um, How much is that today? I know, we should look that up. Uh, we'll, We'll post it. All right, so... 50 pounds might be negotiated if the father wanted to hush up his involvement. However, most of the time, the expected woman was normally impoverished, and Mm -hmm. they would still be charged five pounds for leaving the baby behind. So the nurse or this this farm would, one, get the father's one-time fee, Mm -hmm. then upon delivery, the mother besides leaving her child behind, would have to pay $5, or five pounds, I'm sorry, five Mm -hmm. pounds. And then at that point, those parties are assuming that that nurse is, has an adoptive family ready to go, who is also paying her. Yeah. So when the women were pregnant, would they stay until birth at this home? No, like some, some places, some farms were set up like, what you're saying, like where there was a home right. or a house. But a lot of times these yeah. nurses or midwives would go to the, the mother's apartment okay. or house to take to make sure that the birth went well and then they would take the baby. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now these nurses slash caregivers would often resort to starving the farmed out babies to save money mm. or even hasten death. Noisy, crying babies would often be sedated with alcohol or opiates. Mm. There was mm. one called Godfrey's Cordial. Um, this is known as Mother's Friend, and it's a syrup containing opium. <laughs> Mother's Friend. Mother's Friend. <laughs> That's horrible, but I'm laughing. There's a there's a song from the Rolling Stones called Mother's Little Helper, which also refers to this. To um, drugging your babies so they'd stop. So they would be so, like, sedated that they wouldn't cry or anything. I, I don't know if it's so much the babies, but I Ugh. think it was the mothers getting drunk or oh, using gosh. mother's little hell. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so many That's children- a huge difference. <laughs> <laughs> um, many children died as a result of such of practices. It is said that these homes, opium killed far more infants than starvation. With the opium. Yeah. Uh, the coroner was in on the practices as well. Uh, recording the deaths as uh, defect from birth or lack of breast milk or simply mm-hmm. starvation. So, like, there was never there was never mm-hmm. a crime there. It was just this is what happened yeah. and that's that. 
you know? Mothers who chose to reclaim or check on the welfare of their children could often encounter problems as well. Mothers would be either too frightened or ashamed to tell the police about what they feel is going on and the wrongdoing because, one, they are an Udwood mother. They're trash. They're, you know, so the police aren't going to take them seriously. But when the authorities did check on the children, they also had problems finding or tracing these children as well. So basically, this is the world that Ellen Dane Mm -hmm. showed Amelia, her teacher. However, Ellen died in 1869, and then shortly after, her elderly husband, Mm. George, died. And now Amelia needed an income, and she was going to put what Ellen taught her to good use. Amelia would advertise her services as a caregiver for infants, promising to find them suitable homes for adopted or adopted mm-hmm. families. She did not have a specific baby farming house. Rather, she operated out of various locations, frequently changing residences to avoid mm-hmm. suspicion. She would take money from desperate mothers and then neglect or harm children under her care. <sighs> Makes me so mad. Yeah. Dyer was keen to make money from baby farming. She assured them, like, the you know, the, these mothers that were dealing with, so far they're dealing with, like, I can't take care of my kid, I have to give it away, or at least for a, a, um, a short time, I can't mm-hmm. be with my child. You know, like, it didn't mean just because you were, in their head, just because you're leaving it with a baby farm, to them, it was like, okay, I'm going to leave it, the baby with you for mm-hmm. now, but maybe in a year I can get my baby yeah. back. Like, you know, like, well, I mean, it's just heartbreaking. Especially if they didn't really have a home or if it wasn't like, we talked about hy- hygienic and everything. I mean, mm-hmm. babies are more susceptible to illnesses. So, mm-hmm. and there wasn't really a whole lot of vaccinations then. Right. Yeah. And it's just sickening how, like, why is this a woman's problem? Like, every pregnant woman on this list there is a man there, mm-hmm. but he's not there. But he, he donated his sperm, but yeah. he's not there. So it's like, it's just, it breaks your heart to see yeah. how much struggle women back then went through because they right. were bringing in, you know, little lives into this world. Ugh. They, were, they were there for the fun, not the finances. Ugh. Oh, my God. <laughs> So she reassured the mothers that she was a respectable and married woman and that she would provide a safe and loving home for this, these children until they mm-hmm. were adopted. Or, you know, she – and she would say, like, oh, I have a family waiting to adopt this baby. And she would give them hope and, you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. – in 1872, Amelia met another man. Okay. She, girl, girl gets around. Uh, she married William Dyer, a local brew laborer. They mm-hmm. had two children together, Marianne, mm-hmm. also known as Polly, and William Samuel. Amelia eventually left her husband, and she had other plans. At this point in her baby farming career, Amelia decided to forego the expense and inconvenience of taking care of any babies and she was paid to that she was paid to take care of and this is when she became kind of like a full-on serial killer so did her children did sorry did her children go with her yes when she left her husband so she had her own two children Mm -hmm. and were you know decided she would start taking these babies in but then it was easier to just kill them instead of trying to find a home for them yeah i don't even think the children technically ever got to her house like she took the baby from the mother when she gave birth and within like she was there when they gave birth they paid her the money she wrapped the baby up she left the house and no one ever heard of these she showed up babyless 
but with money at home. Yeah. At home. Back yeah. home. Back to her home. Yeah. Uh-huh. <sighs> oh, okay. So by letting all the children die through neglect and starvation right after getting paid for each child, then she murdered them. So for some time, Amelia eluded mm-hmm. the interest of the police. But she was eventually caught in 1879 after a doctor was suspicious about the number of child deaths that she had claimed. So she was getting, like, death certificates for each child. So she she would have to go with the coroner and she would have to do all this. Yeah. Okay. She was playing legal at one point where she felt that she had to report the death and that she had to get a a death certificate for each child. But this would change. (sighs) However, instead of being convicted of all these murders, suspected murders, she was sentenced to six months of hard labor. (laughs) And she stated that the experience of hard labor almost destroyed her mentally. Oh, the killing of babies didn't destroy her mentally? (laughs) Yeah, no, no. Actually serving six months of hard labor almost destroyed her. Oh, Lord. This this, this delicate flower here. Hmm. (laughs) I have a, I've always loved the name Amelia. I have a different opinion now. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Amelia is a pretty name, though. Yeah. Okay. So, upon release of this hard labor, uh, she attempted to resume her nursing career. She also had some visits to the mental hospital due to her mental instability and suicidal tendencies. Mm-hmm. But the police stated that these always coincided with the times when it was convenient for her to disappear. Huh. Okay. Police kind of knew that. She might be up to no good, mm-hmm. but also I think you can't assume that the police weren't corrupt. Sure. Majority of times that these women were seeking out these people, like Amelia, the father may be the police chief, sure. maybe the governor. Yeah. So. Of some sort of power or authority figure. Right. Yeah. Or just men, because police back then were predominantly men just being more loyal to other men even if they didn't know them Mm -hmm. you know yeah yep yeah so so now being a former asylum nurse she knew how to behave as a Mm -hmm. patient in order to get the best possible treatment (laughs) she was doing research she was doing research she also started using alcohol and opium Mm -hmm. to control her mental instability I think her mental instability also led to her substance abuse. It's a coping mechanism. Yes. 1890, she got another job. And this time, she was hired to care for the illegitimate baby of a governess. Mm. Now, what is a governess? A governess is a private tutor or educator who is employed to teach or care for children in a private household. So like an au pair. Okay. The role of a governess was most common during the 18th and 19th century, particularly in the upper class families. Mm -hmm. She was hired so the governess can kind of go out and have a life and Mm -hmm. then... The governess would come back to visit the children under her care. So basically, even the governess here is a mess. Because, okay, you're hired to take care of X, Y, and Z who live in different areas. But then the governess is hiring people to do her job. Yeah. So, like, the governess is almost like subletting her job to other people so she doesn't have to be everywhere. It's a big hot mess. It's just, it reminds me of The Haunting of, of Bly Manor on Netflix. Yeah. Yes. Where they bring in an au pair mm-hmm. and, yeah, care for the children, yeah. Yeah, but they kept on dying in that show, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> one time when the governess returned to visit one of these children in her care, well, not technically her care, the governess was immediately suspicious and stripped the baby to see if the birthmark was present. So the governess said, that baby doesn't look familiar. 
I gave you the care of this child, Amelia. So she ended up taking the clothes off of the baby and realized, oh shit, that's not the same baby I left you with. Oh my lord. Amelia basically killed the initial baby and then got another baby. To replace it. Until the governess left the house. Wow. Yeah, she was that level crazy. Baby gate. Baby gate. (laughs) The governess did report her suspicion to authorities, which led Amelia to have a mental breakdown. Mm. She, at one point, tried to commit suicide with drugs, but ironically, her long-term use had built up a tolerance of opioid products (laughs) in her system, so she survived. Fail. Uh Uh-huh. And they sent her to a mental hospital where she got out and, once again, back to baby farming and murder. So, like... I, I don't know. I don't know. I guess baby farming mm. was, was, a, was a common practice back then, so they didn't know how to prosecute for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Amelia realized a problem here. She was involving doctors issuing death certificates. Yeah. I was going to say that's a paper trail. The more right. people you bring into it, the better chances of getting caught. Exactly. So she yeah. caught on to this and she started disposing bodies herself. The the precarious nature of her activities, again, prompted undesirable attention. She was alerted that the police were on to her yet Mm -hmm. again because Mm -hmm. some parents were seeking to reclaim their children. But Mm -hmm. now she didn't have a birth certificate. She had nothing. She frequently relocated to different towns and cities to escape suspicion. And she always, no matter where she went, she always started like a new business and she went under different names. Mm -hmm. And back then, you couldn't really trace anybody. Yeah. Baby Farm LLC. So until 1893, after being charged with her final stay at the Somerset and Bath Lunatic Asylum. And I'm going to check this out for my next spa day because this sounds great. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well... Yeah, Bath is a is a one a larger city in England also in Som- Somerset. It must be like is that what that means? I thought it was yes. like Bath, like a literal Bath. No, Bath is a town or a city. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, unlike her previous breakdowns, this had been the most disagreeable experience she has ever had. So not like other asylums where she knew how to play the game. No, no. This asylum was actually trying to treat her. Oh, good job. So, you know, when she left, she gave them like a like a one-star review on her Yelp, and she just moved along. <laughs> Not recommended. <laughs> Two years later, she moved to Berkshire. This was followed by a move to 45 Kingsington Road, Reading, Berkshire. Reading, Berkshire. You got to say it with the accent. Oh. 45 Kensington Road, Reading, Berkshire. <laughs> you sound like Dana now. okay so this is where she decided to set up her business all right now in january 1896 evelina marmon a popular 25 year old barmaid gave birth to an illegitimate daughter named doris she quickly Mm -hmm. placed an advertisement in the miscellaneous section in the bristol times and mirror newspaper it simply read wanted respectable woman to take a young child mormon intended to go back to work and hoped eventually to reclaim her child. Ironically, next to her own advertisement read, marry couple with no family would adopt a healthy child, nice country home, terms 10 pounds. <laughs> I know. Mormon responded to this 
Miss Harding, and a few days later, she received a reply from Amelia. Miss Harding wrote, I should be glad to have a dear baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own. She continued, We are plain, homely people in a fairly good circumstances. I don't want a child for money's sake, but the company and home comfort. I and my husband are dearly fond of children. I have no child of my own. A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love. Miss hmm. Harding insisted she be given a one-time payment in advance, and Mormon was basically desperate. She paid her 10 pounds, and a mm-hmm. week later, Miss Harding arrived to pick up the baby. Mm-hmm. Mormon was surprised by Amelia's advanced age and stocky mm-hmm. appearance, but she handed mm-hmm. over her daughter a cardboard box of clothes and 10 pounds. She stated she felt like a broken woman. Mm-hmm. A few days later, she received a letter from Miss Harding saying, all is well. And then she wrote back to Miss Harding, but she never received a reply. Mm. Amelia went to 76 Mayo Road in London, where her 23-year-old daughter, Polly, was staying. There, she quickly found some white tape used in, like, dressmaking, mm-hmm. wrapped it twice around the baby's neck, baby Doris. Oh, gosh. Tied it in a knot. Death would not have been immediate. Yeah. She would confess later, I used to like to watch them with the tape around their neck, but it was soon all over for That's them. That's disgusting. It is. The following day, Wednesday, April 1896, another child named Henry Simmons was taken to the Mayo Mm -hmm. Road house. However, with no spare white edging tape that they used on Doris, the tape that was still wrapped around Doris's corpse was removed to use to strangle the 13-month-old baby. I know. On April 2nd, both bodies were stacked into a carpet bag along with bricks for weight. She threw the two small bodies over the railings and into the River Thames. Mm. She thought she got away with it Mm -hmm. until the discovery of corpses. And Mm -hmm. they literally call this the discovery of corpses. On March 30th, 1896, a package was retrieved from the Thames. The package Amelia dumped was not weighted adequately and had been easily spotted. It contained the body of a baby girl who was later identified as Helena Fry. Mm -hmm. Detective Constable Anderson made a breakthrough, as well as finding a label on the body which said Temple Means Station. He used a microscopic analysis of the wrapping paper. When I say wrapping or the tape, I mean that this this is the stuff that they used for like um for dressmaking, like a seamstress would use. Yes, he was able to decipher a. Faintly legible name, which was Miss Thomas, and the address, her previous address with her husband. This evidence was enough to lead police to Amelia, but they said they had no strong evidence to connect her directly. Uh, Additionally, evidence they got from the witnesses and the information obtained from the Bristol police only served to increase their concerns. Mm -hmm. And D.C. Anderson, which is the detective constable, with Sergeant James placed Amelia's home under surveillance. Mm. Now, the detectives and the officers were like, you know what? We're going to play a game. She wants to play a game. Let's we're going to play a game. this theory. They sent in their yep. own young woman as a decoy. Yay! Hoping that she was going to be able to secure a meeting with her about her services. Now, remember, Amelia is not supposed to be into baby farming. Period. Mm-hmm. But 
she said, absolutely, yes, you know, I am this, I, I do baby farming, and she set up a, an appointment with her. Uh, at one point, she was expecting for the new client, the decoy, mm-hmm. to call, but instead, she found detectives waiting at her doorstep. Mm-hmm. So immediately, when she she confessed that she did have this business, and I, I guess that's all they needed to kind of mm-hmm. go to the next step. Yeah. So now on April 3rd, which is Good Friday, the police raided her home. They were struck by the stench of human decomposition, although Ugh. no human remains were found. Just the scent. Just the scent. There was, however, plenty of other related evidence, including white tape, telegrams regarding adoption agreements, pawn tickets for children's clothing, receipts for advertisements, and letters to mothers inquiring about the well-being of their children. Mm. The police calculated that just in the previous months alone, at least 20 children had been placed in her care that were missing. This led to some crazy estimates that over the the decades that she may have killed up to 400 babies and (gasps) children. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She was arrested on April 4th and charged with murder. During Mm -hmm. April, the Thames River was dredged and six more bodies were discovered, including Doris and Mm -hmm. Harry. Each baby Mm -hmm. had been strangled with the white tape. She later Mm -hmm. told police, and I'm going to put in quotes, that was how you could tell it was one of mine, the white tape. Wow. That was her signature. That was a signature. Eleven days later, Miss Mormon identified her daughter's remains. Oh. So she basically confessed to whatever they caught, like whatever they, they she wasn't going to confess mm-hmm. anything more. Later in the story, there is a song, and I want you to sing it. Okay. In your accent. <laughs> so on May 22nd, 1896, Dyer appeared at the Old Bailey and pleaded guilty to one murder. That was Doris Marmon. Her family mm-hmm. and associates testified at her trial, and they all stated that they were growing suspicious and uneasy about her mm-hmm. activities. And it emerged that she narrowly escaped discovery on several occasions. And remember, she also was going into the hospitals when she knew she was like, the jig is up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only defense she offered was insanity. Look at my history. Yeah. She had been committed to asylums a number of times. However, the prosecution argued successfully that her mental instability had been employed to avoid suspicion. And the committals... Mm -hmm were said to have coincide with the times when she thought she was going to get arrested. She's like, oh, I'm out. (laughs) Yeah. And that's just kind of goes to show, I mean, in the Insanity Plea, we've talked about it before, too, Mm -hmm. knowing the difference between right and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. She knew what she was doing was wrong. And it took the jury only four and a half minutes to find her (laughs) guilty. (laughs) That face. Yes. Four and a half minutes. Four and a half minutes. And the sentence. That's got to be some kind of record. I don't know. This is in the UK. We should try. We should see the quickest (laughs) record. We should see that. The the quickest jury deliberation in the world. We we need to figure that out. Okay. She was sentenced to death. In her three weeks in the condemned cell, she filled five notebooks with her last true and only confession. A chaplain Mm -hmm. visited her the night before her execution and asked if, you know, if there was anything else she had to confess to, she just offered up the books and said, is, is, isn't this enough? Like, she she mm-hmm. literally filled five books of her confession of how many people she killed. Wow. Now, I should wow. find out if they have those books in, like, a, a museum or something. Yeah, that's interesting. June 10th, 1896, 
She walked on top of a scaffold and she was asked if she had anything else to say. She said, I have nothing else to say. Just before she dropped and hung at 9 a.m. precisely. Mm. It is uncertain how many more children Amelia murdered. However, evidence from other witnesses and materials Mm -hmm. found in her homes, including letters and many babies' clothes, pointed to many, many more. The Dyer case caused a scandal. She became known as the Ogress of Reading. The Ogress of Reading. What is an Ogress? Murderer? No Alexa, what does Ogress mean? The name of the set of numbers is the result of the sum of all numbers in that set divided by the total of numbers in no. the set. Alex is an idiot. No. It could be me. It could be operator error. <laughs> Alexa, stop. <laughs> She inspired a popular ballad. So now, Kat, I want you to say that in your best. <clears throat> Go ahead. Go, girl. Me, 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 me. Okay. The old baby farmer, the wretched Mrs. Dryer, at the old Bailey wages is paid. In times long ago, we'd made a big fire and a roasted so nicely, the wicked old Jade. Oh, my God. That was actually really good. How was that? that? Was excellent. Oh my god, that's really I have never chatters I have never read that before or sung it before. I just went that with it. That was excellent. That was all improv. <laughs> Adoption laws were subsequently made stricter, giving local authorities the power to police baby farms in they should really mm-hmm. do without baby farms, but they were just policing them in hopes of stamping yeah. out abuse. Despite the scrutiny of the newspaper personal ads also being a problem and the mm-hmm. trafficking and abuse of infants of did not stop two years after mm. Dyer's uh, execution a railway worker inspecting carriages found a mm-hmm. parcel inside was a three-week-old girl this this young child was still alive mm. the daughter of a widow Jane Hill the baby had been given to Miss Stewart so this baby was coming from Jane Hill and it was going to Miss mm-hmm. Stewart and Jane Hill paid Miss Stewart 12 pounds mm-hmm. they were able to track the baby Miss Stewart had picked up the baby at Plymouth and then dumped her on the next train it was claimed that Miss Stewart was Polly the daughter of <sighs> Amelia Dyer uh, surprise not surprise hashtag crazy yeah yeah. Some suggested that mm-hmm. Dyer was Jack the Ripper. Oh. There is, however, no evidence to connect the two. So, sorry, not yeah. sorry. Yeah. So, now, in popular culture, the character of Amelia Dyer appeared in a short story called The Baby Farmer uh, in a horror collection, Behold the Void. I gotta look that up. Mm. Amelia Dyer was partly dramatized on an episode of the 2022 BBC radio podcast series called Lady Killers. Lady Killers. So that is my story about the baby farm serial killer murderer, this bitch right here. I don't like it. (laughs) You know what? When you look at her face, though, like this is pure evil. That's evil right there. Now, is that a, is that actual like a, a photograph or is that an artist rendition? Okay, that's her. They didn't learn about lighting back then. <laughs> she, she was no ring. <laughs> Look at those bags under her eyes. No ring light. I'll tell you right now. I feel pretty. <laughs> There's <laughs> contrast right I here. I feel pretty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh my so pretty. God. So yeah, that is her Wikipedia picture. <laughs> oh. So what's the difference between, uh, I mean, other than maybe the legitimacy of it, a baby farm and a, an orphanage? An orphanage is when parents relinquish their rights of being a parent. You're now mm-hmm. giving the child up to the state. And then at that point, the child can either live the orphanage for the rest of their life or get adopted. 
But Amelia, okay. she was not an orphanage. So, like, you were not technically relinquishing your parental rights with her. You could get your baby back. Oh. The baby Dora. Like, that mother. Oh. She said, like, I have to go back to work, but I want my yeah. daughter back. Bringing your kid to an orphanage, it was really, it was the end. That was it. Yeah. This baby farm practice made parents more hopeful mm-hmm. to bring them back home. But I have a message. Yeah. Okay. Chatters. Yeah. Spread the word. Yeah. We have what's called safe havens. Yes. Don't rely on Craigslist or somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Okay. If you know, if you're aware of somebody who had a baby and can no longer take care of that baby, take them to a police department, a fire yes. department, a church, mm-hmm. a safe haven to be able to care for, because our socialist society, we will, there is money dedicated to taking care of those babies if like the mother finds themselves in an unfortunate situation and they can't t- take care of the baby don't yeah pass them off take them to a place that's a safe haven where the baby will be taken care of because there are plenty of families out there and you know and parents who well there are there really are they, there's a lot of families out there that are not able to have children it would do anything to be able to have a child right Right. And not murder them. That is heavy. That is a heavy story. Yeah. And it's, you know what? I It's so old. We don't have that much information. But like, if it was yeah. maybe within the last 50 years, we would have so much more to go mm-hmm. on. But we don't really have pictures of the parents or the children. <sighs> we, we don't. So, but. Well, she's rotting in hell. She's rotting in hell. And you know what? I'm going to remove that immediately because that is just. Yep. It's, yeah. The haunting mm. of the augurus of Reading. <laughs> yeah. That's what it looks like, a haunting picture. Right? All right. Well, yeah, that's my story. Mm. And I'm sticking to it. (laughs) No drama here. We just bring the drama in the story. She was drama. She is the drama. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, because we don't want to leave you hanging, Chatters, for more information on this case, please check out After That Crime Chat, only available on Patreon. Yes. And don't forget to follow us, Crime Chat with Nut and Cat. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter. See what we got going on. Remember, Crime Chat with Nat Cat. when you become a chatter on our Patreon, you'll have access to bonus episodes, behind the scenes, bloopers, free merch, and also, you know what? Give us some recommendations. Spankies. Yeah. Recommendations. It, we're going to be working on that. It's a good one. And so be sure to check out our next episode. I'm going to cover the infamous Ed Kemper. Oh. Another heavy story. That's going to be good. I've been doing already so much research on it. He's watching videos and and all that. That's a heavy one. There's a lot there. There's a Mm. lot of evil there. Holy crap. You don't want to miss it. We will see you at the next crime chat.